It was a dark and stormy night. No, really, really it was. It was the year 1990. There was a blackout on the island of Oahu, and Tracy and I had just come from a church service where something had happened that we still laugh about to this day. During the worship service that morning, a woman stood to her feet and began speaking with the words that universally signal to Christians that God is talking, so you better pay attention. In a commanding tone, and in King James English, she began, Thus saith the Lord. And then she proceeded to admonish and exhort the church with words that suggested that God had been keeping us under surveillance, and he had seen enough to warrant a verbal intervention, and now it was time to drop the hammer. I have been watching you, my people, she said, and I have seen thy works. She literally said, thy works. Now, this could definitely go a number of different ways, and, and it, it went pretty dark pretty quick. She went on to let everybody know that God wasn't pleased. He wasn't pleased with the people, uh, the leaders, uh, the music, the worship, pretty much anything that they were doing. Most of all, God seemed to want them to know that they were living in sinful compromise to the lusts of the flesh. Now, to be fair, in most congregations of 50 or more, she probably wouldn't have been wrong in assuming that somebody in the room was cowering under the guilt of a hidden vice or two or 20. But this was a few dozen people who've crossed into the last quarter of their lives. And if the internet or Viagra had been invented yet, nobody in this room had heard about it. She went on to reveal the lust in their hearts and called them to turn from their evil ways. And I opened my eyes and scanned the wrinkled audience and thought, how much sin and debauchery do these people have energy for? She eventually landed the plane with one last, thus saith the Lord. In case we had forgotten who was speaking, I guess. Now, just then, a man across the room stood to his feet and said, Thus saith the Lord. Uh, here we go again, I thought. The fire has jumped the road, or in this case, the aisle. And now we're going to get blasted again from the left this time. But to my everlasting delight, he said the following words. Thus saith the Lord, that was not me. Okay, I was dying now. Now we had dueling prophecies going in a church service. His word was exactly the opposite of her word. And she didn't go down without a fight either as the exchange went back and forth a couple of times before they finally sat down like a couple of beach volleyball players at the end of a long, hot day. Either one of these people was completely off or God was schizophrenic or neither of these aging saints was dialed into the throne room of heaven and had just had it with the rest of them and decided to invoke God's name to make a point. And maybe they were totally sincere and had come to believe that the slightest whim or hunch of a mood or a feeling was a signal from God that said, if you're bothered, then he must be bothered too. And that's why he's bothering you. And that's what we call conviction. So get on your feet and say something. Get bold. Say something and go ahead and use my name to get their attention and straighten them out. I don't know what these people were thinking, but I, I figured out what the others were thinking later on when we were told that eh, it was really no big deal because those two play prophetic volleyball on a pretty regular basis. Bump, set, spike. The substance of their words I've forgotten after all these years, but the phrase that eternally stands out as the only authentic word of the Lord that was spoken that day, in my opinion, is, thus saith the Lord, that was not me.
So today on the Reckless Grace Podcast, we're going to talk about knowing the voice of God. And we're going to answer the question, is it possible to know the voice of God, to hear God speak, and to relay what he says? Well, stick around. Find out. Thus saith the Lord. I'll be right back. There's somebody here with a big black garden. There's somebody here with a large apartment. There's somebody here whose name is Flo. No. Well, love is not you, it's someone you know. Oh, there's somebody here, somebody here, somebody here, somebody, somebody here, somebody here, somebody here, somebody, somebody is here. Well, the song you just heard is by a dear friend of mine named Godfrey Bertel. Godfrey's a fascinating individual, one of the most unusual worship leaders I've ever met, and I count him as a dear friend and a lover of the Father's heart. Godfrey carries a humility, and he calls us all to it. And as he says, the greatest test of Christian humility is the ability to laugh at yourself. Now, this isn't making fun of us as the body of Christ, but sometimes we're downright funny, and the ability to laugh at yourself is a virtue all of us need to learn again. We've become way too serious here. And in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. So check out Godfrey's music. The song you just heard is called, There's Somebody Here. And as Godfrey told me, all of those are real lines that he has heard in real meetings. And he just felt inspired to make a song out of it. On a recent podcast, I talked about what happened with the prophetic community in the last election. So I figured it would probably be a good idea to validate the gift of prophecy today and teach a few minutes from the Bible on why and how God still speaks today. Now, this is going to be an unusually serious podcast, but I think you're going to find a lot of substance in it. And and, and it's really kind of an important thing because I had somebody say to me this past week, Bill, you, you, you tell funny stories and that's great, you know, but you, you kind of dinged the prophetic a little bit and you didn't give us any solution on how to move forward if, if the voice of God can actually be heard, responded to, and how we should communicate it. Can you talk about that, please? Well, you know what? They were absolutely right. I got to give some solutions as well. So that's what we're doing today. So if you got a Bible handy, it'd be great to turn to John chapter 10, verse 27, which simply says the following phrase. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. Now, to understand prophetic ministry, it's kind of a good idea to start with the words of Jesus. And this verse reveals a couple of important revelations. One is this, God actually has a voice. As a matter of fact, the word of the Lord is the most powerful force in the entire universe. With his voice and his word, he creates entire worlds. But he's not going to use his voice or his word to break your will. He just has too high a value for your freedom and ability to make a choice. But of course, his Holy Spirit's been given to us to teach us what to choose. All right, so God's voice creates worlds, but he won't break your will with his word. Now, you and I, I think if we had the power to break somebody else's will with our word, we'd use that all the time. But the reality is God just simply offers his word as an invitation for us to surrender our will to align with his. And and when we, made in his image and likeness, uh, partner with his spirit to co-resonate the sound of heaven into the earth, 
we'll understand the power of our words and we'll speak and release blessing and those words will be a living invitation for others to partner with the heart of the Father that we're releasing. But we won't get offended if they say no to the invitation. You know, Jesus didn't get offended when people didn't correctly respond to his words. He just kept living the invitation by releasing the sound of heaven. So God has a voice and so do you. But there's a big difference between you and God, even though there's no distance and separation because of the Holy Spirit. The second revelation in this verse is that we are sheep. And sheep are quite possibly the dumbest animals on the planet. But here's a promise. In this verse, it says that my sheep know my voice. And it's kind of interesting that God uses the analogy of us being sheep because it reveals that even the dumbest sheep can actually know the voice of the shepherd if they have relationship with that shepherd. So, hey, that gives every single one of us hope. All of us can know and hear and learn to respond to the voice of God. Now, when Jesus told us that the Holy Spirit was going to be upon us, he was revealing something really remarkable. We were all about to get access to a divine upgrade that would make a mysterious God even more accessible than he had ever been before. If you want to take down the following verse and study it in your own time, I recommend it. John chapter 16, starting at verse 7, Jesus says this, But I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, I want to just talk about this verse for just a little bit. One of the first things is Jesus actually sets up the coming of the Holy Spirit as an upgrade from his own physical presence. Jesus is fully God-submitted to human limitations to demonstrate what it looks like to live life in human form. God is actually showing us what it means to be a human being made in the image and likeness of a God who is spirit and how to steward this world with the words and the sound that we release from our heart. So, so even though God as spirit is omnipresent, God in the flesh, in Christ, was not in multiple places at one time. He wasn't having more than one conversation at a time. He occupied a single physical space within a single physical body. So there's a major upgrade now when the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, now resides in every single believer who invites him. Jesus is actually saying that it's so much more powerful to have God in the Spirit within all of us rather than having God with us just in the flesh occupying a single body. So Emmanuel, God with us, fills us with his spirit, God within us. So the incarnation is now multiplied across humanity. 
Now, you may wonder, so what is the role of the Holy Spirit here? It says, Bill, he's going to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Well, the word convict literally means to convince us. In other words, to draw us out of one thought process into another. Now, for some people, that can be a painful process because it involves something called unlearning. And in order to learn a new revelation, it almost always involves unlearning an old one. The first part, it says, is convict the world of sin. Why? He says, because they don't believe in me. The result of believing in what Christ has done is that you lose all faith in sin. You lose all confidence in the power of sin. And now your confidence is in the power of righteousness. You know why sin messes with you? Because you think that Jesus didn't accomplish what he accomplished on the cross. You think, well, I still have a sin nature, Bill. I'm still stuck sinning because I still got this sin nature. Hey, listen, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus did something on the cross and it actually worked. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things passed away and all things have become new. Your old man died with Christ and didn't resurrect again. Your ability to resurrect the old nature is just demonstrating your supernatural ability to raise the dead. It's just a supernatural power that's being misused on your old man. But the reality is, is you you don't have to have a sin nature unless you want one. In Genesis chapter 4, God comes to Cain after the fall and he says to Cain, He says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. God doesn't say to Cain, sin is inside of you because of what your parents did because of the fall. It's not the way it works. Romans chapter 5 tells us by one man, that's Adam, by his disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, that's Jesus, many will be made righteous. Whatever Adam's sin did to condemn us in the fall, Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection did much more to make us righteous before God. 2 Corinthians 5 goes on to say that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and this is how he did it, by not counting your transgressions against you. It's not that God looked throughout the world and said, let me find somebody who's not sinning and reconcile them. It's not what he did. He looked at a world filled with sin and transgression and decided a radical, scandalous approach to the whole system. He decided not to put your sin in your account. Now, if you have a balance of zero in your sin account, then what keeps you from being righteous and holy? That space between your ears where you consistently think of yourself as nothing more than a sinner saved by grace. So you live in sin then by faith, because faith is just an exercise in belief. And and when you believe that you are something that you're not, you'll actually return to a false identity as a reference point for how to do life. And, and, And so here's the challenge. Let the Holy Spirit convict you about sin by convincing you of what Christ actually accomplished on the cross. And then you'll discover that your true identity is in Christ. Not about this costume. 
In Christ, Paul said that there's no male or female, slave or free, Jew or Greek, all are one in Christ. In Christ becomes the gravitational center point. The, the union of, of God and man is found in Christ. And now it is being in Christ that defines how we do life in this costume. So being in Christ is your eternal identity that transcends race, gender, nationality, and social status. Once you begin to realize that, then you surrender to allow in Christ to be the starting point from which you do life in this costume. I could go on and on about that for hours and hours, but I'm just going to leave that set there and let, let you marinate in the reality that the righteousness of God in Christ is more powerful than the power of sin. It goes on to say, concerning righteousness, which we've just talked about, the Holy Spirit is trying to convince you of your identity as the righteousness of God in Christ. Then he says, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Did you ever ask the question, how in the world did Satan become the God, small g, of this world? Well, God initially gave dominion and authority to Adam to rule and to reign, to steward this earth, to assign nature to the world in which he lived. And when the fall of man occurred, God approached the trio that was kind of responsible for the whole mess, and that would be Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And in the poem of Genesis, he doesn't go to Eve and he doesn't go to the serpent. He goes to the one he initially gave the dominion to, the authority. He goes to Adam and he says to Adam, essentially, what happened here? Now, Adam can choose to take responsibility upon himself and recognize that with much power comes much responsibility. That's not just a line from a movie. That's actually kind of true. He goes to Adam, says, what happened? And Adam instead chooses to partner with judgment and blame. And he says, the woman you gave me, it's her fault. Now, when he does that, God turns his attention to Eve. Why? Because Adam, in judgment and blame, just gave her the authority that was his. You see, you're never spiritually weaker than when you partner with judgment and blame, even if that judgment feels justified. As a matter of fact, when you partner with judgment and blame, it's really hard to pray for the sick or pray for anybody for that matter, or even share your faith. As a matter of fact, you communicate a completely different spirit, a completely different sound than the sound of heaven when you partner with judgment and blame. And when Adam does this, he passes authority on to Eve. Now God turns his attention to Eve and he simply asks her essentially the question, hey, so what happened here? And Eve could have taken responsibility, but instead she too partners with judgment and blame and says, the serpent tricked me. And now God turns his attention toward the serpent which represents the devil, which represents the forces of darkness or Satan in this world. And now God says to the serpent, begins to tell him about the ramifications of what he's done and that the curse that is upon him. But here's the thing about the serpent. The serpent never says a word. In silence, he essentially is saying, yeah, this was all my fault. Thank you very much. And in silence exercises a, a level of dominion and authority and assumes the responsibility. 
We know this is true because later when the devil and Jesus go out into the wilderness, the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, and then he gives him a whole bunch of challenges. And in one of them, he says, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth because they have been handed to me. And that was true. But you remember what happened when Jesus, the son of God, God in the flesh, stood before the political and religious leaders of his day. And they begin to ask him, hey, who are you? You say you're the son of God. You, you say God is your father. You're saying stuff that's blasphemous. This stuff is heretical. You know you could die for this. You better clear the record really quick. Who are you actually? And then they wonder, why in the world isn't he speaking? And so to try to provoke him to talk, they spit on him. And then they actually punch and hit him with their fists. They pull out parts of his beard. They're trying to do everything they possibly can to provoke a response. But you remember what the Bible said about the Messiah? Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep before her shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus does the exact same thing before the religious and political leaders of his day that the devil did all the way back in the garden. And in silence, he exercises dominion and authority, takes that dominion and authority to the cross, into the grave, gets the keys of death and hell, rises from the dead with these words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now you go. So here in John 16, the ruler of this world has been, past tense, judged. In other words, there's a decision that's been made here. And Jesus has not lost the authority. And ultimately, when he tells you and I to go, he is now saying with his voice, you've been commissioned to action once again. Now you can live and move and have your being in this world, empowered by the Holy Spirit, free to walk in righteousness and invite as a living invitation an ambassador of Christ, the world to be reconciled to God. In other words, to be who they are. So Jesus reveals here that the role of the Holy Spirit is to connect you and I to the heart and the voice and the mind of God. The Holy Spirit speaks to God's people on God's behalf. So Jesus is setting up sons and daughters, you and I, to hear the voice of God for ourselves. This is what it means to be a, a priest unto God. It means you actually have direct access to the heart of the Father. Now in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, Joel's prophecy is fulfilled where God promised he would pour out his Spirit on all flesh. There's that word all. As a matter of fact, if you want to expose unbelief in the heart of just about any Christian, use the word all and see what kind of kickback you get. There's three ways that the Holy Spirit communicates to us according to Joel's prophecy, and it says dreams, visions, and prophecy itself. And one of the first things that you got to have is desire. In other words, there's got to be something in you that actually wants to connect with and hear the voice of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 1 says, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So we pursue 
the prophetic, that is, connecting with the heart of God and revealing what his heartbeat is saying to the world. We pursue this prophetic mandate because it's a scriptural mandate for us to desire to actually do it. Now, I think it's often said that as Christians, we're to seek the giver and not the gift. And as spiritual as that sounds, the Bible actually says that we are to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And that word desire is, well, it's strong beyond the point of comfort. It literally means zealously lust after. Now, before you have a knee-jerk reaction to it, I want you just to understand Paul was trying to do whatever he could to cut through the noise of religious self-righteousness and convince you and I that every gift that God has created to give us is a display of his goodness, and it's worth pursuing with passion and boldness. I even say, oh, wait, wait, I, I thought prophecy belonged to the professionals. I mean, th- that's the people with the biggest followings on Facebook, right, Bill? No, actually, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 31 implies that all believers can prophesy. Take a look at it. It says, this is Paul speaking, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Again, if you want to expose the spirit of unbelief in the church, just point out the word all. Paul uses it a lot. Now, Paul is writing to a church that he has relationship with, but the congregation, it's changing all the time. He doesn't know who exactly is going to be in the room when that letter is read, but still he says that you can all prophesy. In other words, he's so confident in everyone's ability to connect to the heartbeat of God and relay the voice of God into this world that he doesn't distinguish between people exercising the gift. Now, ask yourself this question. Is Jesus prophetic? I'll give you the answer. It's yes. Does Jesus live in you? That's a question you have to answer, and I certainly pray that it's yes. And if the answer to both of those questions for you is yes, then it would be spiritually and biblically illegal for you to say that you can't prophesy. Now, I want to point out that there is a distinction between being able to move in the gift of prophecy and walking in the office of a prophet. It's the difference between a gift and an assignment. Everybody may have access to a gift, but not all have the same assignment. For the purpose of this podcast, we're only talking about the gift that belongs, belongs to all and not the assignment that belongs to some. All right? Now, the next part I want to just unveil to you is, is this, and this is really important. Hearing from God is a progressive and unfolding process. And in my own experience, and as far as I can see in the scripture, Here's how it works. And maybe this will help you to understand the process. First, I want you to think of the word revelation, not as in the book of Revelation, but revelation like this. You receive an impression, a word, a picture, maybe a scripture, a physical feeling, or an emotion, and you perceive through those impressions that God is trying to get your attention to show you something. Once you perceive that you think God is actually trying to tell you something here, then you move to something called interpretation. Processing with God involves 
asking some questions. God's not afraid of questions, by the way. Doubt's the issue. Questions aren't. And they're very distinctly different. God is drawing you into engaging with his Holy Spirit. And he's called the Spirit of Truth. Now, I often ask the question whenever I feel like I'm getting an impression, Lord, what are you trying to say to me? Or what are you trying to show me? Much of our communication with the Lord is in us talking to him. And in prophecy, we develop the skill of not just speaking, but in listening. And we listen in order to learn. We also learn to focus on God and others. And what this does, it gets our eyes off of self, which is actually really necessary in order, in order to communicate the heart of God accurately. And the third is once you've gone past revelation, you know that God is trying to get your attention and interpretation, you get a, an impression of what God is actually saying. You get a little clarity about that. Now we move to application. A prophetic word doesn't become complete until you give it a voice. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 3 says, but one who prophesies speaks to men, and it gives for three reasons, for edification, exhortation, and consolation or comfort. So 1 Corinthians 14 speaks about the effect of prophecy. It challenges unbelief in all of us. The secrets of the heart are laid bare, and we end up worshiping God. In prophecy, you are exposing the goodness and greatness of God, and you're exposing that greatness to people who may be confused about his love and affection for them. And so you're exposing the reality that the love and the affection of the Father is for them. You're exposing the treasure that God has placed within a person that may have been hidden under years of sin and regret. And this goes into the ultimate purpose of why in the world we prophesy in the first place. We prophesy for strength, for encouraging, and for comfort. God shows you something negative about somebody. It's not that you can prophesy negativity and gloom over a person's life. For you have access to the resources and the answers of heaven for every problem that can ever be faced in this life. So you're not here to diagnose the situation. You're actually here to bring healing and wholeness. That's part of the new covenant value of the prophetic which means that through the prophetic, we can actually bring people to Christ, and we call that prophetic evangelism. Prophetic gifts inside the church are one thing, but the prophetic is often most effective outside of the confines of a gathering of believers. And when I'm talking to people I have no relationship with, it's my desire to accomplish two things. First, to bring the word of the Lord accurately, and to build a relationship where life can flow freely between us in both directions. So I typically won't say, if I feel like I got a word from God for them, I don't say God says or the Lord said, and I most definitely don't say, thus saith the Lord. Come on, recognize what year you're living in here. Why? Once you play the God card, there's no room for conversation. Nobody feels like kicking back against God. And so what I will say is this, I feel like the Lord is saying, or I feel like the Lord said. You recognize that God is speaking through the uniqueness of the voice that you carry. And it means that you're going to put it in your own words using a language that you understand. 
So when you say, I feel like, it means you are now owning the word and taking responsibility for both hearing it and the communication of it. So here's a great phrase that I like to use. It goes like this. Hey, God knows everything about everybody. And here's one thing that I feel like he just showed me about you. You know, God will give you impressions about total strangers because he's trying to get us to understand that in the spirit we are one and he genuinely cares about whether or not we care about others. Now, you may have had this. Have you ever seen a complete stranger and you have just an impression about them and it's not from the physical appearance or even what they're saying? You get an impression about something in their heart. Whether positive or negative, it's, it's an impression that you realize, I couldn't have made this up on my own. See, it's because you're made in the image and likeness of God. He's trying to connect us with one another and release spirit and life through us to ignite and awaken that same spirit and life in others so that the body of Christ can actually grow. So the prophetic word becomes an invitation for someone to step into a destiny in God of awakening us to an awareness of our unity and our union with him and with each other in the spirit. Go back and listen to that little section right there about 10 times. I don't think I could repeat that again if I wanted to, but it's probably worth getting into your spirit. Now, seeing is really easy. You say, what do you mean seeing? Opening your eyes to see prophetic activity going on around you is actually pretty easy. It's simply allowing the Holy Spirit to awaken the childlike imagination that God has placed within you since even before you were born. God told Jeremiah, I knew you before I formed you. And inside of you was a measure of creativity that reflects the very nature of God as creator for you're made in his image and likeness. Now, let me help you with this a little bit. When you were a child, you did this stuff all the time. You didn't have to think about it. You didn't even have to pray about it. You didn't even have to ask God to do anything here, right? You just did this all the time. Let me explain here and take you through an exercise. When I say to you, see a tree, go ahead, just see a tree. Let yourself see a tree. In your mind, see a tree. You start to picture a tree, but it's not just any tree. What kind of tree is it? Is it an oak, a maple, a pine? Look closely at what you're seeing in your mind. What kind of a tree is it? Is it tall? Or is it short? See, you see how specific a kind of tree that you're actually creating in your imagination. Now we're waking your imagination up a little bit. See how you can change that tree to be whatever you want it to be? Okay, how about this? Try this. Let's take it a step further. Picture an apple. A dear friend of mine, an amazing prophetic teacher named Janice Sini, who's gone on to be with the Lord, sat down with me one day and says, this is how we waken up the childlike imagination. Picture an apple, she said. And, and, and I want you to do that with me. Picture an apple. Okay, is it red or is it green? Now, I want you to pick up the apple in your mind and feel it, just in your mind. You can actually feel it, can't you? I mean, it can actually feel cool, right? Now, picture in your mind taking a bite from the apple. Now, can you think about how the apple tastes? Sure you can. Does it? How, how are you doing this, really? Does it taste sweet or does it taste sour? See, now we're taking 
taking all of this thing with the imagination, we're taking it a step further and combining your senses with your imagination. Now, I know some of you are going, wait a minute, this is new age visualization, Bill. No, it's not. Listen, the devil has not created anything. All he can do is counterfeit the authentic that God has created, all right? So your imagination is not evil. It's a gift from God. And without the ability to engage that imagination with heaven, you can't follow the words of Jesus that says, unless you become like a child, you can't even see the kingdom of God. In other words, unless you have the ability to just freely let me work with the limitless boundaries of your dreams, your imagination, beyond all you could ask or think, Ephesians 3.20, Uh, according to a power at work within you. Listen, if you can't let God engage with you on this level, seeing the kingdom is going to seem impossible for you. And just through this simple little exercise, we've begun to combine both the mind and the senses because you can imagine an apple and you can also imagine how it tastes. So now we're putting the senses together. And listen, again, this might seem really childish, Let me again take you to the scripture I just quoted to you in Matthew 18, 3, where Jesus says, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter or experience the kingdom of heaven. Now, listen to this. Your imagination was never meant to be something you grow out of. But rather, as you grow up, you're to develop and train your senses to commune with God. For in the kingdom of God, maturity looks like childlikeness. In Exodus chapter 3, there's an encouraging story on hearing the voice of God. And in verse 2 begins the story of God revealing himself to a man named Moses. And he does it in a most unusual way, through a burning bush. The bush is burning, but it's not consumed. And Moses recognizes something unusual. And when he recognizes something unusual, he makes a conscious decision to give attention to it. He turns aside to see what's happening. And the Bible says, when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, then God spoke. Now listen to this. When you allow your curiosity to turn your attention and affection toward the things of God, you have just set yourself in position to hear his voice. i give you an example. How often have you been going through your day and suddenly a name of a person or the face of a person pops into your mind you haven't thought of for a long time? You may shrug it off as nothing. Most of the time we ignore it. And within a short time, somebody mentions their name or you run into that person and you say the phrase, you know, I was just thinking about you. If you didn't purposely and consciously turn aside to check it out, you may never realize that God's trying to speak to you. There are bushes that are burning around us all the time. But sometimes we just need to let it interrupt our day, interrupt our agenda to turn aside and see what God is saying. Getting a prophetic word might involve closing your eyes and letting God give you a picture. It may involve keeping your eyes open in which case you may actually be a seer, can actually see spiritual things with your physical eyes. It may involve a feeling in your physical body, or it may involve an emotion that you feel when you see or look at a person. It may involve a word or a phrase that comes to your mind. 
Often God will give you a single word or a phrase that doesn't mean anything to you at all. You have the revelation, but you don't have the interpretation, and that's okay. Sometimes the revelation is all you get, and in faith, you just deliver the word, and only God and that person that you've given the word to know what it means, and maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. Often, just the faith to give a word you don't understand activates a spirit of wisdom and revelation, kind of like uncorking a bottle. Insight begins to flow, and God begins to fill your mouth with words while you're speaking. And when this happens, you often have to work it, not looking shocked at what you're saying. There's a lot of symbolism that comes with prophetic words, and it requires the Holy Spirit to give you the right interpretation for that moment. Like if I say the word snake or serpent, what do you think? You might think fear, curse, or warning. But is that what it always means? No. Remember the story of the Old Testament when the bronze serpent was put on the pole and people were healed? So, In one sense, it could be a warning. In another scenario, it could mean a healing. You see a red light. Does it automatically mean stop? Maybe it means something else. You see the color blue. For those who study prophetic symbolism, blue often stands for revelation. But is that the case in this moment? You don't just rely on formula and symbols because they don't always mean the exact same thing every single time, and this is important. We never exchange the voice of God for a formula. We never exchange a relationship with the voice of God for some formula that doesn't require us to hear his voice in the moment. Sometimes one person will get a revelation of a word, another person will get an interpretation and so on. So one person gets a picture, someone else gets the understanding, somebody else gets the application. And this is how we work together oftentimes in ministry as a team. When we do this, we put the unity of the body on display. And I really think God has a deep affection for this. But here's the deal. This all might seem really fascinating to you, but the point of it all is revealing Christ. Revelation chapter 19 verse 10 says this, The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the very heart of prophecy brings about a revelation of Jesus Christ. When a prophetic word is given well, given accurately, and with a sound that reflects heaven, Jesus is glorified. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Everything in the Old Testament was a huge prophetic picture pointing to both the need for and the reality of Jesus Christ. And prophetic declaration in the New Covenant still hasn't changed in its focus. It's all about Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, says this, Set your affection, your heart, your mind on things above, and when Christ is revealed, we are revealed. I want to finish this day with a song, uh, once again, by Godfrey Bertel, but this time it's a song that has brought healing to many people. Godfrey has the privilege of going into hospitals, uh, especially hospitals that deal with mental illness, over in the United Kingdom. And this song, as he's sung it over people, has resulted in people being freed from mental sickness and mental illness. And I've met some of these people as Godfrey and I have ministered together in in the UK. People who thought they'd never get out of a mental institution or never be off medication that the doctors said they would need all the days of their life. And when they hear this song and hear revealed what God believes about them, 
there is a healing that happens, spirit, soul, and body. I encourage you to look up Godfrey Bertel's music on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download or stream music, and, uh, and, and it'll bless your heart and really encourage your day, and who knows, might even bring healing to your mind. Two thousand years ago we bled into one And when I think of it I'm drunk on your love So great is the love that you've lavished on us We are your children, oh God Now every distance has been cancelled in Christ and separations and illusion a lie So great is the love that you've lavished on us We are your children, oh God And that is what we are That is what we are We are your children, oh God And that is what we are that is what we are. So today, let me just say a prayer over you and, and believe that God is going to awaken your ability to perceive his presence and hear his voice and share his love with a world that's very confused about who he is and what he's like. So Father, I pray that right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would awaken that prophetic grace as Paul said, on all of us. God, that we would all come into an awareness that you're speaking and your desire is to be heard, not just by us, but through us to a hurting world who needs your voice, your voice that brings healing and brings comfort, that brings encouragement to our hearts. Lord, Lord I pray that, that that word, that voice would flow through us today in a new way that would ignite us with a fire of revival to bring your spirit and life everywhere we go. And I thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing right now in everybody listening to this podcast today. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Hope you enjoyed it. See you next time. Thank you so much for your love and support. You make it possible for Bill and Tracy to keep the message of Jesus Christ going around the world. We're thankful for every open door, not only in the U.S., but in places like Ireland, England, Scotland, France, Germany, and more. We are always encouraged as we find fires of God burning each place we go. We value your prayers more than you can even imagine. If you feel compelled to give, you can find a link at billvanderbush.com. We would love to hear from you. Feel free to write to us at Faith Mountain Ministries, P.O. Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258.